This is Margaret Cho, and you're listening to Everything Fab Four on Salon.com. Everything Fab Four, a podcast focused on fun and intelligent stories about the Beatles. I'm your host, Ken Womack, music culture columnist for Salon.com and a Beatles scholar and historian. No other band, or popular phenomenon for that matter, has enjoyed the global impact the Beatles have and continue to have more than 50 years later. They are part of our human fabric. They created music that continues to bring people together, and just about everyone has their own Beatles story to tell, some that are surprisingly deep and unexpected. This show seeks to draw those stories out in interesting and insightful ways. Remember, it's a Beatles world, and everyone has a story. They were always there. They were just literally always there from as far back as I can remember. My, I was really lucky because I, I grew up with uh, three older sisters. I was doubly lucky because they had great taste in music. And crucially, my middle sister, she was a Beatles obsessive and she was in the bedroom next to mine. And so as far back as I can remember, I just had Beatles music coming through the wall. Today's guest is Dougie Payne, bassist for the Scottish band Travis. Payne was born in the south side of Glasgow and was educated at Wood Farm High School. He went on to become a student at the Glasgow School of Art, where he met the band's singer, Fran Healy. They teamed up to form Glass Onion, named after the Beatles song, later renaming themselves Travis. Originally, Payne was not part of Glass Onion, which featured two other members, but when they left, he was invited to play with the band. At the time of being asked, Payne had never touched a bass guitar in his life. For weeks, he refused to do it until finally he agreed. The band's name comes from the character Travis Henderson, played by Harry Dean Stanton from the film Paris, Texas. The band released their debut album, Good Feeling, in 1997 to moderate success where it debuted at number nine on the UK album charts. It was later awarded a silver certification in January 2000. The band gained even greater renown with their second album, The Man Who, in 1999, which spent nine weeks at number one on the UK album chart, totaling 134 weeks in the top 100. The LP's success was driven by the hit singles, Why Does It Always Rain On Me and Turn. In 2003, The Man Who was certified nine platinum. That's non-Oople platinum, representing sales of more than three million copies in the UK alone. Following this success, the band released their third effort, The Invisible Band, in 2001. Spearheaded by the hit singles Sing and Side, The Invisible Band went on to match the success found with their previous album, where it debuted at number one on the UK album chart, spending a total of four weeks in the top spot, 15 weeks in the top 10, and 55 weeks in the top 100. A year after the release of The Invisible Band, Travis was awarded with a quadruple platinum certification. In 2022, Travis hit the road in celebration of the 30th anniversary of The Invisible Band. Welcome, Dougie Payne. 
I am so excited to speak with you about the 20th anniversary of the Invisible Band. We can spend two minutes talking about us and the rest of the time talking about the Beatles. That suits me. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is uh, that's wonderful. So <laughs> let's talk about about Travis first, then. Um, what what is it like sitting here 30 years later? Uh, looking back on this this wonderful album, I remember vividly visiting London at the time of its release, and mm. I think everywhere I went uh, in the tube, there were invisible band ads. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think it's it's really funny that we. I thought that putting together the box set, particularly for the for the reissue, I thought that was going to be the, the the kind of most enjoyable part of it because we looked back in our own archives and so got our photos out and tapes and demos and all that stuff, and it was really it was a lovely process putting that together and it it was it felt strangely like no time had passed and we had a conversation with Nigel Godrich about making the record and what his memories were of it and it was just really lovely and um, and we were still kind of in lockdown when we were putting it together and then when lockdown ended and we actually got to do the thing that we'd done previously with the, the, man, the man who, sorry, that's my phone, um, that we'd done with the, the man who, which was play the, the album in, 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 in order. Um, and we actually, lockdown ended and we got to do that. We, start, we started doing that. And this record, The Invisible Band, it just runs even better than The Man Who as a show. So these shows that we've been doing have been really beautiful actually they've been lovely shows the shows look great sounds great and as a set it's a it's a really great 45 minutes it's got light and shade and good dynamics and it's just it's a lovely thing to play and i find myself being back in oceanway studios in la in my mind uh in specific songs and i kind of just lose myself you know in in that moment and um and it, it seems like you know, you say it's like it's been 20, 22 years since we were recording that, making that record. And it feels like no time has passed at all. It's so strange. Right. And I just misdated it as being 30 years old. I apologize for oh, yeah, we're, another we're decade. Not, we're not that old. <laughs> we're old, but we're not that old. <laughs> That's right. Many good years left. Um, and, <laughs> has anything surprised you about looking back at it and playing it again? Um, surprised, the surprising things have been, there's, a, there's quite a few songs on there that we have not played at all for since we did the original Invisible Band tour, so 20 years. Uh, Dear Diary, The Cage, Safe, uh, Follow the Light. I mean, more than half the record probably we haven't, we haven't played. And what's um, surprised me most about the shows is how well the really delicate and quiet songs go down. Things like Dear Diary and um, and The Cage in particular, they're very fragile little things. And I can did not didn't really understand or I kind of couldn't imagine how those things were going to go down in kind of larger venues. You know, we've just we've just been around the world this last two weeks. So excuse me if I'm a bit jet lagged, but you know, we were playing little stadiums in Mexico and these tiny songs that are these fragile little moments 
kind of, but they seem to hold an audience that are, are, you know a few thousand people, but seems to they seem quite captivated by them, and uh, and so that's really been surprising. I've really been enjoying those little songs. It's like they have a new life, I guess, in a way. Yeah, exactly, exactly, and 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 it's uh, particularly in something like Last Train. Yeah, I find myself absolutely back then, back 20 years ago, and I just close my eyes and I can see Jason, our, our friend Jason Faulkner played keys on that that song, and I can just see him in the corner of the room just playing away. And yeah, it's it's a, it's a very it's an atmospheric show, and it's it's been lovely for us actually. Well, you know, it's the, those sensual qualities, for example, the memory of you seeing the keyboard player, et cetera, that make all of this so powerful. Mm. Um, <clears throat> you know, it's one thing that's really interested me about Travis over the last decade or so is how you've attracted new listeners, um, yeah. you know, who aren't necessarily from, from our generation. And I'm thinking in particular of my students who are, of course, 18. Wow. Um but they know Travis and uh, they, they their gateway is a very interesting one. And it's the office. Oh, yeah. When they used sing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, what, yeah. what was that like? I mean, it's you know, that show had such a powerful emotional arc. I can't tell you how many times my wife and I have watched it all the way through, but it it has that emotional power and the soundtrack to one of the key moments for those those two characters uh, is sing. Yeah, we. I mean, we were so lucky that they 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 chose to use that song because, like you say, it did open open up kind of a whole new bunch of people uh, to, who were like, "Oh, well, what's that song?" And it had a and it was a it's such a good show and everybody in it's so good and it's and it's and it was a like a powerful, <laughs> lovely emotional moment and um, and so yeah, we uh, it was it was. Uh, it just seemed to be a good marriage, you know, of uh, of the show, the song, the moment, because kind of like a synergy that um, we were we were really delighted and, and grateful that um, because it, it doesn't matter how you find music, you know, it doesn't. It doesn't. This is why when people go, oh, vinyl is the best thing, and Spotify is terrible, and all whatever. <laughs> it's, it, it, do, it doesn't matter. It, it doesn't matter because music exists outside of all of that. It's it's like, like doing these shows. It's it's magic. It's real magic, and it's it, it's like a time machine, uh, and then it kind of exists outside of time. It does you know it soundtracks your life, and it really doesn't matter how you get a hold of it or how you first hear something that you know, will nourish you, will get you through ter- bad times, will make your life better. It's it's powerful stuff, you know. Sure. And in this case, it's all that potential energy of the relationship between yeah. you and Pam. And, and in a cool way, I know for our students, you are associated with that. And uh, I can't imagine too many things that are better other than perhaps uh, the other band that we want to talk about today Mm. Um, and uh, and of course, that's the Beatles. And you know, <laughs> you and I are roughly uh, in the same cohort here. We're not first generation fans; we're second generation fans. There's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> uh, you know, in fact, we didn't need the Ed Sullivan show or you know Val Parnell to show yeah. us who the Beatles were. We found them in much the same way you just described 
with Travis in the office, right? Through the yeah. osmosis of the universe. What was your first discovery of the Beatles? They were always there. They were just all, literally always there from as far back as I can remember. My, I was really lucky because I, I grew up with uh, three older sisters. And um, they were they're quite a few years older than me, like eight, 10, and 13 years older than me. And I was doubly lucky because they had great taste in music. Um, so I grew up in a pop household. You know, it was all, every Thursday it was Top of the Pops. It was always Radio 1 on the, in the kitchen. And crucially, my, sis, my middle sister, Jill, she was a Beatles obsessive. And so, and she was in the bedroom next to mine. And so as far back as I can remember, I just had Beatles music coming through the wall. And, but weirdly, she was exclusively the first half Beatles. There was, she didn't even go to Rubber Soul. She was, wow. she was please, please me to help. And that was it. And she just loved that almost exactly the first half of the Beatles. And so those early albums, those first few albums, she she even had the American versions, she which was you know not not easy to get in those days. Um, she had the, she had meet the Beatles as well as with the Beatles, you know? and um, so all those songs would be coming through the wall, kind of as I was falling asleep, as I was waking up, you know, and uh, and years later, people kind of older than me, when we moved to London and we were meeting people in the music industry and record labels and management, you know, talk would inevitably turn to the Beatles and these guys would go, how do you know all the words to ask me why or no reply or, you know, <laughs> all these kind of uh, deep cuts. Like, how, do you, how do you know Babies in Black so well? And it was just like, it just seeped in when I was from the age of zero um seeped into my consciousness and become you know you know what it's like it becomes part of your dna it becomes part of you um so yeah and then it was like a game of two halves with the with the beatles because i knew the early records inside out and then i got to know them as the different band the weird band the uh the the hairy hippies you know <laughs> and uh, and when i when i was a teenager and i was and I got into them at the same time. I got into that second half as I was getting into, you know, the Doors and Zeppelin and all of those things when I was 14. So it was like two different bands to me. And in a way it is because that's part of their magic is that, that they are so different, you know, that they are able to go to so, so many far flung sonic places. I mean, no one else does that. You mentioned babies in black. And I taught that in my last Beatles class uh, oh, a few weeks ago. Yeah. We're starting helped uh, tonight right. uh, at Beatles for sale right before our, our, our fall break. And babies in black is one of those cuts that always goes over so well. It's a dark story. It's a sad story, but it has those harmonies is is that a favorite of yours? I I feel like you didn't slip that in accidentally. It was, it's not. It, do you know what? I, I do like that song, but I, I was kind of I've been because I've been watching the anthology again with my kids. I've been showing them the anthology because it's a rites of passage and it should be done. And I I was interested to hear McCartney talking about Babies in Black and saying 
you know, we were really pleased with that song. We were, they were, they thought it was really clever because it was waltz time, and they were, they thought this was a, a step forward for them. And then he went, but I don't think any of the fans liked. <laughs> it was never a big favourite, so I thought that was quite funny. So I've just been listening to it again recently um, because I'm, I'm kind of going through the the you know the the big gold songbook. I'm going through that from start to finish and trying to learn them all off by heart. So that's uh, that's been one that's been getting played recently. We'll be back with more from Dougie Payne after these messages. We're back with Dougie Payne on Everything Fab Four. At the risk of being a snooper, I mean, I notice behind you are the uh, Hoffner and the Rick. The, the, the Hoffner, that, that is a 63, 64 Hoffner, 64 Hoffner. That was the first thing I bought when uh, we got signed when we got our first kind of little bit of advance, I bought it in New York. And uh, yeah, and then I got the, the, the Rickenbacker I got a bit later. But yes, you got, you know, when actually when we, we went into the studio to do um, Lovely Rita, it was like a, the anniversary of Sergeant Pepper's. Um, this was a, a good few years ago. So I think it was, what, what anniversary was it? 40th maybe. Yeah, it was maybe 40th anniversary. And um, we went into uh, the studio. We were asked to do one of the songs to cover Lovely Rita. And um, we went in with Jeff Emmerich. But the thing was, it was getting all these bands, like, you know, there's Brian Adams and Stereophonics and Kaiser Chiefs and all these people. And it was getting all these bands to record it as the Beatles did on, on four track. And it was the original four track from, uh, from EMI. And so we, and obviously Jeff Emmett was their engineer, knew all the all the, the ins and outs of the machine. And so we went in and had the greatest afternoon ever. Just, we kind of, we just had a blast. Played the, played the recorded Lovely Rita really quickly and really just, we were just having such a good time. And Jeff was like, oh my gosh, you know, this is, this is, incredible because so many bands have been really struggling with just not having any computers and not doing it on and having to do it on on this four track machine and we were just having a blast and that was that was i played that ripping back because obviously that would be what the cartman was playing at the time so i felt it was uh appropriate <laughs> that's beautiful and that room i don't know about you i i you're a pro so i'm sure you have no problem but when i walk in there i can't breathe i it's just too much for me <laughs> it's it's an amazing, amazing place. Um, we've been, I mean, the thing is we've been in that, we've been fortunate enough to be in, in, in Abbey Road quite a few times. One of the, 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 I think, was it the last time? No, maybe it wasn't the last time. But one, the best time wasn't even anything to do with us recording there. It was, um, we went to see Paul invited us to go and watch him do his launch for Chaos and Creation in the Backyard. Oh, which yeah. Was, which was the record that uh, Nigel Godric produced. So that was the, the connection. So me and Franny um, I went down and just he was in there with everything he had, the the, the Elvis bass, you know, the Bill, is it Bill Black bass? And he had, you know, his, he had his four track with his Mellotron and Nigel was doing stuff and it was just him Playing. The first thing he did was sat down at the piano and just played. I mean, there was an audience of about 200 or something, but just sat down, played Lady Madonna straight off, and it was just, it's just great. 
Okay, well, you, so my students in my Beatles class would be blown away uh, (laughs) to know that you got to see the author of the song play that amazing intro to Strawberry Fields Forever. Yeah, yeah. I mean, only a handful of people can say that. (laughs) Yeah, it was beautiful. And it's just his, Mac is just infectious enthusiasm and completely natural but restless musicality he just it's just he can't stop he can't stop being music he is music you know well, he's amazing in a way it's right it's like any creative artist journey it's uh, a trip you'll take but you will never arrive yeah <laughs> you yeah. have to live with absolutely. the fact that you know there is no absolutely. there <laughs> it's all journey. it's all journey <laughs> so um so it was no doubt that when you and Fran named your first band, right? Glass Onion. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like I say, they've always been there. They've always been there. Yeah. It's, I mean, Glass Onion was actually before I even joined the band. Um, and uh, it, was, it was, I think it might even have been Glass Onion before Franny joined the band. I think that was an Andy Dunlop thing. Andy, ah. Andy our guitarist, who is a you know huge Beatles fan when we were at art school together um we because be- before I joined the band we were all friends independently we met uh, in, a, in each other individually and Andy and I became really close uh, in in art school and every Friday we would uh, go down to the printmaking building with a, a bottle of wine and a uh, guitar or two if we could rustle them up and um and we'd just sit and play and sing and um and it was you know we would play Beatles songs we played small faces songs we played everything and it became kind of a little pre-Friday night out event and it got quite you know people would come down and hang out it sounds almost like a 60s thing but you know it was the 90s um and it was just it was great and that was where Andy and I bonded over you know, a lot of music and a lot of Beatles stuff. So we, 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 we're both noting, of course, the upcoming release, uh, the re-release, the remix of Revolver. Well, uh, where does that album sit in your pantheon? I guess it's your sister has no interest in it because she stops with Rubber Soul, but. <laughs> she didn't know. She didn't even go to Rubber Soul. She stopped at Help. Oh, wow. <laughs> she was she was militantly first hand. Ah, when she draws a line. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Um, no, I I think Revolver is the greatest record ever made. Um, I think it's sometimes I, I kind of because I'm a massive boy fan as well, so sometimes I go for a hunky dory. But yeah, Revolver's the greatest record ever made. And um, because it's the past and the future all at once, even at the time, you can imagine it being the past and the future. Um, You know, you've you've got children's songs, you've got true psychedelia, the proper English psychedelia. that's because the American psychedelia was a very different thing, but English, particularly English psychedelia, I'm not, I'm saying, not saying British for a reason, but English psychedelia was very much 
um, a harking back to the past as well as kind of this futuristic or kind of mind expanding thing. Um, and look, I think when you listen to Tomorrow Never Knows, it still sounds like it was made tomorrow. <laughs> it's, there's no way that thing can be, you know, however 60 years old or however long it is. Um, it's 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 an insane piece of work. It's an utterly magical thing, um, and I think Revolver. Yeah, it's it's a it's a high point of uh, human achievement. It really is, and it it's true to its name. I'm so glad they made the selection of that title because it is a wheel. It's a wheel of all of those different emotions uh, and experience. I mean. The psychedelia, as you said, of Tomorrow Never Knows is never more alive for the Beatles than it is on that song. And yet you have deep sadness in For No One and Eleanor Rigby. For No One is one of my favorite smaller Beatles songs. I think that's just a, a gorgeous song. It's it's so beautiful. And yet Eleanor Rigby is, you know, it's a it's a it's a, a full play in two and a half minutes. It's a whole, it's the whole detailed character study in, of many characters in such a brief time. It's uh, it's a, it's a mini, mini miracle that, that song. Um, yeah, it's, uh, I, and it just also, there's all, there's, all, there's all this depth and all this, as you say, sadness, but it also, it just seems like they're having such a good time making it. You can hear that through, through the through the ages. It just feels like they are. That was them, absolutely at their their peak togetherness in a way. It was like this the create the creativity that can only come of four people really being in sync, really being in each other's pocket musically and almost literally. It's um, it's it's that's. I think that's why it's so special. Very well said. And it, it's it's so rare for people to be in that space. It's such a precious thing, right? You know, sometimes you feel in life like, well, this will just go on forever. I can always capture this and this will always be available to me. But we learn, right, that it isn't. Yeah. And, you know, everything they did at that point seemed to, they seemed to be making each other better. That's, that's what was, that's what's really remarkable about it. I mean, when, uh, when the rest of the Beatles said to Paul, you know what, there's nothing we can do on, on this about Eleanor Rigby. Even their absence was, was, a, was a creative act. Even their absence was making that song better. It's, uh, it, it's just, they couldn't, they could do no wrong. Well, I, I guarantee you, I will now be replaying parts of this interview in class during Revolver. <laughs> and my students are going to know exactly who you are because they either love Travis or they love The Office or both. <laughs> that's good. Which is, uh, you can't be aligned with something, uh, with a brand that's uh, as good as either of those. Now, I understand that as a Beatles fan, you're a serious fan of Big Mal. Mal Evans, the roadie. I love the bit in in um, tune in in Lucian's book that when it talks about Mal kind of when they when they first meet him 
and when he's in the in the cavern and he's just kind of he's he's so enamored with them and he's so but he's so kind of affable and and shy and it's just it's just you just immediately get a sense of what a lovely man he was yeah you know we all need a mal that's for sure <laughs> everybody needs a mal that's true we've we've got our mal our mal is called nick oh really <laughs> How long has he been with the group? He's been with us for twenty six years. Okay, so he's a uh, he's the long termer. He's the mile for sure. One thing I stress in class and in life is no one does it alone. You know, everybody, yeah. whether you're Charlotte Bronte working by candlelight in eighteen forty seven, uh, or Travis yeah. or the Beatles. You know, there's an interesting triumvirate. Bronte, yeah, Travis, and the Beatles. Awesome. Anyway, but right, everybody has to have somebody or many somebodies. Yeah, you know, um, absolutely. There's no, no, nothing is an island, and also there's no such thing as a first anything. Everything is all a continuation. So you have this continuation of agglomerations of people, uh, as in any creative field, and um, yeah, it's the new. You need you need facilitators and you need people to look after you and you need you know it's it what's that phrase it takes a village to raise a child it's a bit like that. Everything Fab Four is presented by Salon.com, the premier news, politics, innovation, and arts website. For more information, visit everythingfab4.com, where you can learn more about our podcast and my latest Beatles-related books, including John Lennon 1980's The Last Days in the Life and a forthcoming biography about beloved Beatles roadie, Mal Evans. The Everything Fab Four theme song, Seize the Day, is provided courtesy of Black Rabbit, the high-octane Beatles cover band and innovative psychedelic rock project from Rockaway Beach, Queens in New York City. Like what you heard today on Everything Fab Four? Be sure to subscribe, give us a rating, and recommend the show to your friends. Plus, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at EF4 Podcast. Distributed by Salon, Everything Fab Four is a wonderful production. Remember, it's a Beatles world and everyone has a story.